Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy and I'll be your host. Today we're going to be talking about extreme environmentalism. From emissions goals in Holland, creating a lot of pressure for the farmers, all the way to Canada on our own soil where we're seeing the federal government make changes to our own fertilizer, which is leading to question if the prices go up, but the yield is lower, then what happens next? And as Christians who are called to be good stewards, how do we operate in a secular worldview that says, make more money? Well, let's talk about it. Welcome to the AC Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. I'm here with the crew of Andy and Steve. Wes is off being a fantastic husband, uh, taking care of his wife today. So we're not going to make fun of him because that's that's what you want. So good on you, Wes. <laughs> um, so coming up, this isn't even an announcement. This is more of like... What what do the good Christians say? What do we normally say? This is a praise report. Uh, <laughs> the event that we've been promoting on the the AC's Instagram, how to talk about your faith, is actually kind of blown up. And Andy is nervous. I think he's nervous. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, a confused nervous. So normally, you know, we're glad to have an event that's popular and people are looking forward to. But there's also a part of me that goes, why is this event so popular? Like, I'm not... <laughs> so we have, we maxed out and they even had like a, uh, a waiting list and I'm sure we would have had even more people uh, come. So I'm excited that people want to come and, and dialogue and discuss about how to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that's good. I'm glad that evangelism is live and well. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also a part of me that's like, okay, what, what are they hoping to get out of this? Because I sure <laughs> hope uh, that they don't feel disappointed. So we're we're looking forward to tonight. Uh, maybe on the next podcast, we'll let you know how it goes. But excited for this event. Excited for, you know, actually multiple events that we've got coming up that that the Lord's really just blessing. So we, you know, Troy and I, you and I are heading off to Kelowna in a, in a couple of weeks here. In September, we'll be speaking uh, at an event uh, hosted by Praxis Church. Yeah. Identity Crisis. Well, yeah, that's right. Identity Crisis. Uh, Ooh, and then there's going to be a band there, actually, that you know, right, Troy? Yeah, a band called 538th Street. They're a local band, and they're fun. They 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 basically call themselves Surf Hop. And I was telling Andy the other day that it was like, they're, they're good. And the fact that I described them as they're fun made me feel old. And I think... <laughs> I think I got some, uh, <laughs> I got to dive back into the culture because for whatever reason, I was like, yeah, they're just a great group of kids. Just, oh, here it comes. Like, <laughs> here it comes. So surf hop, is that an actual term or do they just give that to they themselves? Just, they just made it up. So it's very much like a combination of like, I, uh, if anyone's ever kind of heard like that California guitar type music where it's very... Sounds like you're kind of an indie band, but they're rapping as well. So it's like if mm-hmm. I if I showed you two the yeah, two genres that they've kind of combined, you'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. That makes sense. But yeah, um, I'm I'm borderline the old guy now that's saying they're fun. So <laughs> so if you're in Kelowna or around that area, we would we would love to have you out yeah. uh, for that event. Um, when is that? It's uh it's on uh, September. 16th. I want to say, what was that? I believe it's September 16th. Yeah, September 16th. Uh, you can find out more information about that on our website, but we would love uh, love to see you out. Uh, we're going to be talking on the subject of, of identity. We mm-hmm. will be showing the 
uh, a video from our branded series, which will be released in the next couple months that uh, Troy and I are actually going to start filming next week, yeah. uh, the teaching portion of that. So here at AC, it has been like full steam ahead. We don't, <laughs> I don't feel like I'm in summer mode any longer. It is, nope. it, it is full steam ahead. Plus, I don't know about you guys, but we also have a children's book that is coming in for a hot landing. It is coming in, coming in fast. So we just got, we just heard, we just saw the illustrations uh, this week and are getting everything finalized and just makes me uh, cringe even saying this, but I got two journal articles that need to be uh, finalized too. And uh, <laughs> mercy, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. It's funny. You think that due dates are just about school, but then you get out of school and realize, no, due dates are still a thing. It was a training ground. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a training ground. So that's right. Hopefully we get all it done. But anyways, let's let's get into let's get into this today. Uh, so, so today we're we're actually speaking about extreme environmentalism, and it's it's pretty timely uh, coming off the back of different happenings that are going on in Holland with their emissions, and essentially in Holland they're trying to slash some emissions goals by some crazy numbers, and a lot of farmers are feeling the pressure. Very similar to in Canada, how Trudeau just started talking about the fertilizer emissions, and how a lot of farmers essentially are saying. Okay, I, I get what you want to do. These are pretty lofty goals, but what you're saying is higher prices but less yield. So there's going to be less food, but it's also going to cost us more to do it. And so I guess my question is like, why is no one listening to the farmers? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, right from the get-go, I just find it a little odd that a country like Holland and Canada are so interested in cutting emission, right? I mean, Yes, cutting carbon dioxide emission might be helpful, but if you really want to affect the global kind of a climate, I think you should really um, talk to the countries that produce it the most. And I don't think Holland and Canada fit the bill. I'm looking more out in Asia, where a typical city is, you know, I, I don't know, I... When I first came from over from South Korea to Vancouver, I thought the city was rather small. Like here we're talking about Vancouver. Oh, it's like the third largest city after Toronto and, and Montreal and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm just like, I come from a, a city that's like at the time third largest in South Korea. It ain't nothing like this. It's like way bigger, right? right? right. Um, all that to say there are a lot of people putting out a lot of carbon dioxide, like leaving a lot of carbon dioxide footprint over there. So why is Canada and Holland so interested in this? I, th I think that's a, an important uh, pushback, Steve, and, and thing just to consider that, you know, and this has been a critique actually of this extreme environmentalism is that you'll have places like, you know, the Netherlands or Canada, you know, that are are working on lowering their emissions. And yet it, in, in reality, when you begin to look at what this actually does, it, it actually outsources a lot of the emissions. So that, you know, are you actually cutting it or actually are you just letting other nations uh, do it for you, do your dirty work mm. for you sort of thing? So it, it makes you look like, you know, you're, you're doing more for the environment than in fact you actually are. But, but to back up a little bit, I think it's important just to appreciate that a lot of this is coming 
from the, the Paris Agreement. So you have places like Canada that didn't reach their goals. And so now they're kind of, it's like it, it, everything just keeps getting ramped up. And if you've heard of this uh, net zero, which is, is talked about quite a bit, I mean, it's, it's countries that, that are committed to you know, cutting their emissions to zero. But one of the things you find as you begin to wade into this whole conversation is that it's incredibly complicated. It's very political because you start to realize when they talk about cutting emissions that they're talking about certain sectors and not other sectors, such as um, the airline industry, for example, isn't a part mm. of the net zero calculations. So you're going, uh, well, what you know, what what's going on there? Like, how, how are how are they getting a, a free pass on this? Where what what we're seeing right now with a lot of the uh, protests is that the farmers are getting hit hard. Yeah. And there's a cautionary tale in the midst of this with what's happened with Sri Lanka as of recent. If you've seen the the absolute collapse of that that uh, country, um, and and this this gets complicated. I don't know how much you guys have read into this, but you know they they limited for various reasons. You know, you have to go look into what all happened. It, it's it's some bad some bad politics took place, no doubt. Uh, but attempting to limit their fertilizer use resulted in, you know, decimating their their crop productions. Mm. So, so what happens there is is really simple. That this part isn't complicated. Less fertilizer leads to less food, yeah. which re- reduce which which leads to higher food costs. Period. And I mean, in a country like Sri Lanka, it's it's not like they have as much option right and i think that's it's almost like an arrogance that we almost have maybe maybe in canada is like well we got tons of options we got so many farmers we got so much space and land but you put that into scale like something like sri lanka and they're going to get hit that much harder like we didn't have very many farms to begin with to 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 even try and cover for the ones that we're losing so our loss is like going to be way more substantial to that of a, of a bigger country but it's just interesting looking as a, I was just looking at some statistics CO2 emitting countries from 1750 to 2020 and Canada's not even top 5 now it's not to say that and for being a major country for them to not be top 5 is pretty interesting for us to be going down this route whereas the United States is number 1 by a lot <laughs> by a lot it's as of 2020 it was four four hundred sixteen thousand seven hundred thirty eight metric tons of of carbon and that sounds like a lot <laughs> well let, let's talk about that for a moment because i i think you know people might be asking themselves you know why are we talking about this well we want to talk about uh this idea of you know extreme environmentalism particularly from a christian perspective i i think that we could all agree as christians we believe that god created the heavens and the earth and that it is part of our duty as um, not only as creations of God, but caretakers of yeah. what God has created to steward um, God's creation well. I mean, the earth is amazing, and we want to and we want to take care of that. The thing, though, that gets me concerned as I start watching all what you know, all that's happening is 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 I appreciate that there is politicking taking place here, and some really weird environmental sleight of hand that gets me mm. uncomfortable that I think we've got to talk about. 
because we're talking about admissions em- emissions here. And one of the things that I think is just so fascinating about this is, you know, let, let's take cars as an example. Okay, we want to reduce the amount of uh, carbon that we're releasing into the atmosphere. So you see this push, particularly here in Vancouver. I know this isn't probably the case for you out in Alberta, Steve, where you drive your, you know, your Ford pickup truck and yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I could just see Steve in this giant lifted pickup truck oh, yeah. driving around in Alberta. But here in Vancouver, they, like every other car is a Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you should mention that because uh, Sharina and I, while well, the whole family actually went to visit in the lower mainland in the Vancouver area. And that was the first thing that she noticed was how every other car, well, maybe that's an exaggeration, but there was, there no, were a lot of Teslas <laughs> and <laughs> other kinds of electric cars. And you come out here, it's like, in Alberta, we don't even necessarily have the the infrastructure that's matured yet to support yeah. that sort of thing. We do have Teslas and things like that, but you would see a lot fewer of them here. And yeah, you do see a lot more. I mean, you go to Edmonton, every it, it's a really funny mix of this, you know, hipster culture with a lot of pickup trucks. Uh, right, along the right. way, right? So it's true. It's true. Well, let me see because I want to. I want to uh, hone in on this because I think this is a key idea that's happening right now. So I think we could all get behind electric cars are a great idea for the environment in the sense that sure. we're not producing as much emissions, for example. Here. But the question you have to ask yourself is, well, how are you creating the electricity? Now, British Columbia, I would argue that we're actually pretty green in this regard because we have the privilege of being able to create a lot of hydroelectricity. So we're able to create dams. We've got a crazy amount of water here in British Columbia. This is where the rain actually pays off, right? Uh, And this year was horrendous, as I've already said, for rain. Uh, But man, do we create a lot of electricity uh, from from our dams. And I'm telling you right now, if you haven't seen the dam in Revelstoke and the amount of water that comes through that, uh, it's worth a dam photo. I'll tell you that right now. Maybe even some dam souvenirs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Bling, you've just now received an email. Ah, okay. Well, <laughs> By the way, that is, that is a running joke in the Steiger house. Every time we pass a dam, uh, my kids will come out with every... Uh, one of those that you can imagine. I won't, I won't continue on that path. But, but interestingly enough, do you guys realize like how most electricity is made? Most electricity, like in the United States, the, the majority of electricity is made by burning coal. And, and so to me, it's like, okay, you're just swapping one, you know, bad idea for another. This to me, I think, and I'm curious what you guys think about this. I, I can't help but feel like what we've got going on with the environment is an innovation problem, but we keep trying to treat it like it's a legal problem. That's that's interesting you say that because just looking even at 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 Tesla, right? So you everyone's bought into this idea that the electric car is the way to go and everything, and I and I still agree to a certain aspect, but just kind of along the lines of what you're saying, what it what the emissions it requires to make the Tesla 
at the scale and the amount that, that they're making. That's a whole nother it. level. Right. You know, like they're, they're yeah. 15, Tesla is 15% of the world's largest companies across 14 Indians indices that do not disclose their overall greenhouse gas emissions. Now, that's incredibly ironic to me that that kind of company would not be, you know, open about these things. And even with them making a big statement, like we no longer accept Bitcoin because of all of those, all of the health concerns and things with that. Like, that's just... It's so oh, funny. Oh, yeah, the amount of electricity that that Bitcoin requires. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, again, you're like, man, are you kidding me? Do you know how much electricity an electric car requires? And 44% of all power in the U.S. is created through coal. 44. 44%. Like, yeah. that's that's insane. And now, let me pick on the British Columbia real quick here, because... I. I got a bone to pick with BC. Uh, <laughs> Remember, he's not from here. Uh, you know, and and this is this is my place because here in Canada, we got to we got to get real about what's going on. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking about, oh, I want to care for the environment. Okay, want to care for the environment. I don't know if you guys know this, but up until last year, one hundred percent of all of Victoria's sewage was dumped straight into the ocean. I'm sorry. All of it. All of Victoria wow. on the island, Vancouver Island, all of their sewage was dumped straight into the ocean. And this this was actually a part of Vancouver's 2010 Olympic bid, as they're like, and the U.S. too. They're like, will you please stop dumping your poop into the ocean and actually do what the rest of us are doing with uh, with cleaning up our sewage? Because there's like, take Saskatchewan for example. I think it's like zero percent of their sewage is getting you know directly dumped into the rivers and i mean and whatnot being severely landlocked <laughs> yeah but, and, and yeah. so you can appreciate the you know this this is a necessity but when you look at when you just take a look at the map of of what how this is still happening in canada it's un it's unreal it's pretty it's pretty shocking and i just bring this up because i just find it fascinating that of all the environmental issues that we feel are are concerning you know right now we're focusing on fertilizer yet for since the 1800s we were fine with dumping our sewage straight into the ocean uh and it still happens it still happens all over in canada i think it's more a matter of th this is the cynic in me talking right but it's more of an optics thing it's about how you soothe my your point. conscience, right? It's really uh, because, I mean, it, it makes you feel like you're doing something mm. when you fork out the money to buy a Tesla. See, this is, this is, this. I, I remember um, when I was in Bible school, my mentor actually taught a course at Columbia Bible College on the environment. And one of the things that he said, I, I actually, for full disclosure, I didn't take the course, but I had quite a few friends who did. And one of the things that they really walked away with was this idea that, you know, at some point we're going to have to start paying for our mistakes in the past in, in terms right. of our choices for the environment. And that really stuck with me. And I think I can agree with that as far as it goes. But um, when you pay for the mistakes, you actually want it to count for something, right? That mm. is something that that actually does something for the environment, rather than just, you know, are we 
paying? Are we spending the money or whatever resources so that it would actually improve the environment, or just to soothe our conscience and it makes us look like we're a little bit more, you know, environmentally conscious and aware than somebody else, say, in rural Alberta and Saskatchewan, let's say. Yeah. By the way, I, f- I feel like we just got to give a number real quick here, just so people can appreciate where Canada's at with our raw sewage. Uh, we still dump two hundred. Sorry, we still dump two hundred billion liters of untreated sewage annually. Yowza! <laughs> Who wants to go for a swim? Two hundred billion <laughs> liters annually. That, 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 okay, so here's my question though, because this is what gets me. This is what gets me concerned about this whole net zero thing and about how farmers are being targeted right now with fertilizers and whatnot. I can't help but feel like there's a bigger agenda going on here, particularly when the meat sector of farming is getting is ultimately getting penalized in all of this and comes to the consumer. And personally, I can't help but feel like there's a bigger agenda going on here about whether or not you should be eating meat or not or what you know the the government or different lobbying groups think is is the kind of food that you and I should and shouldn't eat uh for various reasons mm. you know just the other day i got a message from a friend of mine um a mutual friend actually who now lives in indiana um he sent me this little post about you know 10 reasons why we should be eating bugs Right. And, and insects are now uh, being kind of tout, touted as the, uh, an alternative food source. Now, I understand that I, I grew up in South Korea where we actually have a couple food items that are bugs. You know, like I grew up eating those. And so I understand that, that was just part of the food culture. But having said that, it is now you know, in a sense, being promoted in a country where that hasn't been the norm. Like in Southeast Asia, they, they eat a lot of bugs, right? Um, but then to promote it elsewhere, like I just have to wonder, like, why why is that? But there is a certain kind of, I mean, I can see, for example, PETA being all over this, right? And like they would mm-hmm. certainly not want that sort of livestock industry to continue because they see it as, equivalent to the Holocaust, right? right? And in fact, they had a campaign named Holocaust on your plate. Um, and that that has all kinds of other problems, like yeah, as different philosophies extreme. meet. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's the part of the ex- extreme environmentalism we're talking about here. There are certain, I mean, touting bugs as an alternative food source in and of itself, I don't think is a terrible idea necessarily as somebody who grew up eating some bugs. Um, but w- w- what's the underlying philosophy? That's what I'm really concerned about because well, there it, could be some really yeah. dehumanizing philosophies there. Well, it's a, it's a slap in the face to like, let's just call it what it is. Like it's a slap in the face to third world countries who I'm eating bugs because this is all I have to eat. You know, like in <laughs> like in a lot of situations, it's like we don't have tons of food options like you do. So we learned to literally live off the land in every capacity we could. But, you know, you if I go and move to a country where there's a plethora of farms, there's a plethora of other foods, then that's when b- bugs is no longer going to need to be my secondary dish, let alone my primary dish. It may be a thing that I get just to remind me of home, which is actually what 
uh, one of my friend's moms used to do. She would go to uh, the African superstore and they would have caterpillars, caterpillars frozen when she was feeling nostalgic. But she would would say like we grew up we grew up on these we had to we didn't have much we were poor and so it's just like to make it trendy that that goes into a whole other issue but I think it's just this you always get back to people just become feeder systems for commodities like that that aren't even necessary and it gets me concerned because again we're asking okay well what's going on here and why why are we seeing the sorts of pushes that we are and then even particularly now when we got inflation that is out of control um because i i listen i don't know about you guys but here in british columbia we uh one of the things i love about living here is we have a lot of um a lot of farms that i mean we are in like particularly me i'm in abbotsford so like we're in farm country uh, where some people will tell you that, uh, you know, Abbotsford has a distinct smell uh, to it, uh, which yep. I do remember when it I first does. came, you start to, you start to smell it in Langley, but then as you get really <laughs> into Abbotsford, it really hits you. Uh, especially the mushroom farms. That one is like a kick to the face. <laughs> when that Western wind comes flying, it's, oh, okay. But, there's a city but, over uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> farmers will tell you that's the smell of money, which yeah. I, uh, which I can appreciate. Right. But, you know, one of the things that, that I'm always thinking through is, is particularly living here in, in Abbotsford and knowing as many farmers as, as I know, like you, you know, being here, you see what the farmers go through. You see the challenges of being a farmer. You see the costs of being a farmer uh, and the constant political challenges they're dealing with from, from the government to lobbying groups to, to everything else. I mean, my heart, I don't know about you guys, but man, man, my heart really goes out to the farmers. Yeah. And here we are, we're in this, this time of inflation and we're in this, this time where this year, you know, here in BC, as I was saying, like one of the things I love about living here is just so many uh, berries, for example, so much fruit that's mm-hmm. produced here, but the cost, I have seen the cost double for buying fruit here in the last three years. Yeah. Uh, like it has just gone up exponentially. So like this year I went and, you know, you're buying like 10 pounds of cherries uh, for $40. And I remember like this year when we, when I went to buy the fruit, like every year when you go uh, on your vacation or whatever to a soyas or those, you know, the Okanagan, for those people around here understand that that's, that's one of the major fruit producers out here that, you know, you can, you just see, you just see fl- inflation as you're buying fruit, as you're uh, going to the grocery store. Yeah. And now we're going to put even further pressure on, mm. on these farmers. Uh, we're going to put even further pressure on, on the economy. Yeah. It really yeah. raises See, the question, why would, you, why would we do that? See, that really makes me uncomfortable when we start you know, targeting things that will affect our food supply and, and those kinds of things. Because... Um, I, I, I forget exactly what country it was, but a number of years ago in, uh, in Africa, there was this one incident where uh, in this one particular country, food prices tripled overnight, tripled overnight. So imagine if you, you know, like if your grocery bill is like 300 bucks per trip, let's say, all of a sudden you go to the grocery store and you find that you have to pay 900 bucks close to a thousand dollars for the same amount of food mm. and you know what happened in that country there were riots 
right? Right. Like when same thing with Sri Lanka. Is, right, because food is such a big. Basic necessity, and I mean like basic necessity: yeah. food, water, clothing, and shelter. Right. So when you take out that, I mean, people lose rationality. Right now, this survival mode kicks in. Right, it's going to cause all kinds of problems. And so, this whole I understand what the government wants to do in cutting emission that come, you know, from fertilizers, but. I, I I don't know. Like I'm super uncomfortable. What kind of effect that it's going to have down the road? Well, as as I was kind of like, as I was getting ready for this podcast, I kept some of the articles I was reading. The 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 this new word that kept coming coming up was this word expropriation, the action by the state or an authority of taking property from its owner for public use or benefit, or the action of dispossessing someone of property. And I and I really think that that's exactly what's happening is all these pressures and i've seen it literally in my own family my my father-in-law and my mother-in-law they're farmers like my wife grew up she grew up on a farm and he got the farm from his dad and with their relationship he he like her grandpa built it from nothing like he didn't get any inheritance from his dad he literally had to work deals all sorts of things to to build their family farm and 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 everyone in that area and i remember a couple of years ago um, this was maybe this is already almost eight years ago. I remember when an oil company had come to my father-in-law and said, "Hey, we're looking in the area for oil. Can we have permission to go search on your land? And if we find oil, we'll give you a percentage. But we're going to set up a pump here. We're going to set up a pump here, and that sort of thing." My father-in-law at first was like, "Okay, that sounds that sounds kind of cool. I mean, it's it's a little bit more money." That was the first thing. It didn't end up happening. They didn't end up finding anything. But then the next thing started happening where, similar to t- today, prices uh, and costs started going up so much so that he was essentially said, well, what they're basically doing is putting mom and pop farms in a position where they have to sell to the big corporations. Like down the road, that's no longer the the Tealmans or no longer the so-and-sos. That's now X Corp, whatever running that farm, running that farmland, and they had to sell it and they took a big paycheck. And now the, these people are living in town and quite literally many of them, their health is rapidly declining because all they knew was farming. That's what kept a lot of these families that you got farmers that are 60, 70, still going strong because they have something to do. But now you're actually, this really gets into dehumanizing people because you're not thinking about the aftermath. You're thinking, oh, if I just give these people all this this money, They'll be hap- They'll happily quit farming, but it's to the point where they're like, "If I don't sell, I may not have anything because of the cost of everything." You know, it's interesting. You should bring that up, Troy, because uh, my time in Europe—that's exactly what I've seen. Where you you see these farms that have been bought up by corporations, and they are huge, huge farms, massive. That they're they're massive and. And honestly, listen, I, I don't want to pretend like I've got all the answers, but I, I do know uh, that, there's, that there's some caution here to um, free market capitalism. Because I, I do think, I think that what we think, you know, can't go wrong seems to be going wrong. <laughs> yeah. It's almost become the, the totalitarianism of a free market where you, where you need the government that can step in, that can that can watch to make sure that you don't 
you know, all of a sudden become a society that's governed by companies and that becomes quite totalitarian in the way that they govern and price and and everything else. So uh, again, I don't want to, I don't, I don't really know the answer to a lot of this. I just see the, the challenge of what we're facing because uh, you're also seeing this, by the way, not just in farming, but you're also seeing this in the housing sector where corporations are starting to buy up housing. And so you can start to get this, you can start to feel what's happening here right now. Now, I don't own my home anymore. A corporation own, owns it. I rent it from a corporation, yep. right? We don't own this land anymore. A company owns this land and I yep. buy now my food from a corporation. And you can start to appreciate as this happens more and more, how much power these corporations have. My, my cousin is in that situation, actually. He, he was working for a company in Montreal and they moved him out here and they said, we're going to, we'll buy you a house. And it, it's like a, it's a beautiful home and I'm super happy for him and, and everything. But that's literally, I'd never heard of that before. I'm like, wait, they bought you a house. They're like, yeah, so long as I'm working for them, it's mine. And they'll just keep whenever they have to move somebody they'll they'll move them but i don't know why but uh, if, if it does for you guys but this reminds me so much of like the lorax <laughs> like everybody needs a, a need and it all starts off real nice these ideas and like man this will be great for everyone but it's that over use of power that ends up like leaving people desolate leaving people just absolutely uh, their homes as they know them are just getting destroyed and it's sad yeah, you know, that, that I think really highlights something important, I think, that we often have very good intentions, don't we? Like, we want yeah. to save the environment. We want to do X, Y, and Z. Like, I mean, I, I think of I, just my political temperament being what it is and, and my background and everything. I consider um, the sort of I consider extreme kind of forms of communism or socialism one of the most destructive ideologies that we've seen yet in terms of the sheer number of people who died, right? Mm. Uh, now, I'm not a like an anarcho-capitalist where it's just kind of free range for everyone. No, I think we do need some um, government intervention in some places. But I think about socialism, for example, and I think when Karl Marx, when he was coming up with some of his ideas, his Marxism, like, I'm, I'm like, there's some good in there. Like, I think he meant well, but then look at what happened. If people weren't uh, sinful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. And so, <laughs> and so, I mean, you look at even something like, you know, what happened in China and Cambodia and these kinds of things, right? Kind of this sort of communism being imported into the country rather than having it happen from the grounds up. And what happened? Mm -hmm. Millions of people died. And I think these leaders, when they first started, I think they all meant well. Um, and so I think ultimately what I mean to say is that what we really need ultimately is rescue. I mean, we can have our Band-Aid solutions here and there. And, and in some cases, right, like, um, we do make genuine progress. Uh, I mean, I, I would most certainly want to live, if I had the choice between living in the 21st century versus, say, the 11th century. Like, I'm like, I like my antibiotics, you know, 21st century, please, kind of thing, right? <laughs> um, but having said that, the ultimate problem is in the heart. And so we're constantly going to play, I fear, this kind of 
catch up, the human brokenness creating further and further problems, and we try to fix it, and you know the solution kind of works in some places and creates disaster in others, and then we have to fix that disaster, and then it's it's just going to keep propagating. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is that that's one reason why I think uh, Christianity explains reality well. Mm-hmm. Is that human brokenness? Christianity takes human brokenness very seriously. Yeah, I I agree with you, Steve. I think that uh, clearly human brokenness is a is a key uh, factor that's uh, that's going on here, and and we could easily continue. You know, we can we can develop that uh, more. But the you know the the I think where a lot of people would push back though and say, yeah, I agree, Steve, but we're here, mm-hmm. uh, and we gotta we gotta figure this thing out until the Lord returns. Yeah. You know how are we going to do that? And then there's one thing that I just want to I want to highlight in this conversation that I think is important for people to appreciate. And I think this is a a unique part of the Christian perspective that gets actually juxtaposed in many ways to a secular perspective. And that is, well, how do we solve these issues? Because right now, one of the concerns that that I have with what's going on is that government, by and large, uh. It comes across as saying, hey, if you want to solve this issue, what we do is we pass laws and we say that we will, you know, reduce our fertilizer use and we will make, you know, these these sorts of uh, adjustments so that we are closer to our net zero, you know, goal by such and such a time. But the problem is, it's like reality doesn't care about your mandates, you know, the the reality is, is that you can mandate all you want, uh, but you got to, at the end of the deal, end of the day, deal with reality. So how, how are we going to create real solutions instead of just mandating uh, what we want? If you, if you get what I mean, because let let me just show you how this happened just quickly. And I've said this one before with regards to Russia. Um, Stalin wanted crops in the winter so that he could deal with this problem. Right. Oh, we need more food. Right. Uh, okay. Well, why don't we? You know, for us, we're trying to reduce fertilizer. For them, they're like, well, what if we just started farming in the winter? Uh, which to us sounds absolutely stupid. But they <laughs> they thought, okay, we we could figure out a crop, you know, that could grow in the winter. Winter uh, <laughs> in Russia. <laughs> but at any rate, where did that lead? It was disastrous. That's where it led. It, it led to food shortages and, and all sorts of, of issues. We don't have time to go down the, the Russian history rabbit trail. But I bring that up to say, well, one of the things that that highlighted, that situation highlighted, is where real innovation happens. Science is a wonderful thing in which we can use our creativity as these explorers, right, into well, what's a better farming practice? What's what's something that's going to work better for the environment than what's happening right now with the way that we're using fertilizers? Mm. But think about this. How do you solve that problem then? Do you just tell scientists, "Hey scientists, you need to figure out a better method than fertilizing?" You know, does it does does the world work like that? Mm. You know, can everything just be reduced to a problem and a solution? And if you think about it, though, all of the solutions that we found don't work like that. No. Scientists stumble across their discoveries. They don't set out for them. That's right. That's right. I remember the same thing when I used to do, 
when I used to do construction and landscaping, I remember when they made a shift in the amount of rebar you had to put into a wall. And a lot of the contra- contractors that I was working with at the time were up in arms. They're like, look at this. This is absolute overkill. Like absolute overkill. You have all this rebar in this very small section. And and quite literally the disdain was because they're like, we have these 18-year-old Spitfire engineers who are all thinking about, again, uh, cost and weight and da-da-da-da-da, but have never actually come out to the field. They've never actually come out to see how something is done. So they don't actually have an appreciation for the work it takes to do something in like this. And, I'm, and it raised up an interesting argument because it really went to show me that the people that are signing off on how you're allowed to do things versus the people that are being required to do things, they're not intermixing and they're not having a conversation together. And that's a, that's a big problem. Yeah, we're, we're seeing what, that in the yeah. news more and more. I think one of the things that, that we're going to need to see happen is how do we inspire innovation? Mm. How do we inspire young people to, to go and to explore and to research and to, to discover new ways that we can, that we can do things that, that are actually better for the environment, that we could steward things better than we're currently doing? And and if I could just say then, from what we've talked about thus far, what I'm saying is I think that there's some real easy ones that we can solve right away, like not dumping our raw sewage into our oceans and rivers. That That's seems smart. like a no-brainer to me. Uh, and that we need to think you know, long-term as we start now in different innovating ways to go, okay, how do we solve the fertilizer problem instead of just coming out with a mandate thinking that that's going to solve our issues? I really think it's just the gospel. It, that, I know that sounds like just the, 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 the easy answer, but it's actually not because unless people really recognize themselves as sons and daughters and that they've got the, that the earth is an aspect of an aspect of their inheritance, they're not going to walk with a sense of stewardship that comes from sonship. And because you, you take, for instance, any child, any, like if I, if this is yours and I say, this is yours, you can have it then there's a level of that I'm going to take care of it because not only has it been gifted to me, like it is dear to me. So anything I'm trying to discover is actually for someone else to enjoy because that's the foundation that I'm standing on. If I know that the earth was given to me for a level of, like we say, flourishing, then my goal is not going to be just how many people are going to stand here and be like, oh, look how fancy this is, but actually, hey, I want to pass this on to you. And so passing this on to you may mean that I may not make money. I may not make as much money as I possibly could, but this actually has more to do with relationship than it does ownership. See, see, this, the, this is the problem with a secular culture, Troy, is where does the inspiration come from? Exactly. Right now, all the inspiration, I would say, to our young people is go and make money. Yep. Go and make money. Go find a career. Go, whatever you're exploring, make money sort of, sort of thing. And, and, the, and we've talked about this, by the way, with having children, and that this is a major problem for an economy, mm. uh, particularly a free market, is that you, you need people. You need employees uh, and, 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 and people that are actually going to do all that research and innovation. But in a society, you have to ask yourself, well, what's motivating you to even have children, right? Mm. Because I don't know if you saw, but now it's determined that children cost you about $300,000, Right. And so you have to you have to ask yourself, hmm, do I want to spend three hundred thousand dollars per child that I have? Well, again, what's 
is that is that how we're going to look at the world? I'm going to monetize it, and so now right. children now become a cost benefit analysis of three hundred dollars. Is that's going to be well spent? You start to see this secular sacred divide in the way that you actually see the world and how you're inspired to live in it. And another big twin problem. I mean, it, the, this could be even more fundamental of a problem, right? With secularism. Well, what is secularism telling our people, you know, young people to do? Go and make money. But underlying all of that, I, I would even say more fundamental to that is make yourself happy. Be happy. Do what makes you happy. And that's why when you look at the cost-benefit analysis, you know, what am I going to be happier with by having a child and spending $300,000 or what, right? And so I think that's, if that's the sort of the driving ethic of your life, then really, as long as you drive a Tesla and make yourself feel good, like because you feel like you're doing something for the environment, you're just going to stop there. You're not going to do aspire to do more because actually doing something for the environment may cost you your happiness. And are you willing to go there? And I'm not sure that people who are deeply saturated in this message of follow your heart is going to want to do that. Yeah, maybe maybe this is a good place for us to end just in that, you know, as Christians, I think as we look at the the challenges that we're experiencing, and I think we need to appreciate that we've always experienced challenges and will continue to experience challenges. Um that my hope is that we would be able to draw on our faith as as a source of inspiration as we move forward to steward the planet well, not getting caught up in politics and agendas and ideologies, but that we would have a a deep love for what God has created and a deep desire to want to know how he has created in in uh, in an effort to know God better and in an effort to uh, enjoy being explorers in in this world as we seek to know and to understand and that that sort of creativity would birth new ways of doing things that that uh, that will help the planet. So, because listen, I, I hope that listeners today don't hear us that that we're against the environment. We're a hundred percent for the environment, mm-hmm. but we're for the environment in, in a way that keeps human value in sight, and we're for the environment that is realistic, and for the environment that ultimately keeps God in sight as our source of inspiration as we seek to go forward. And I I think that there's a lot of work right now that needs to be done to inspire the next generation and not penalize the next generation. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. As always, we pray that you were challenged and encouraged. If you had any questions about today's episode or had something that you thought we might have missed, feel free to reach out to us at info at apologeticscanada.com. Ultimately, today's episode is just trying to bring awareness to some of the things that are going on in our world, and the environment is important. We do care about it here at AC. We do acknowledge that there's a lot of people doing some incredible things, but we always just want to bring it back to the gospel, bring it back for our need for salvation, because we need to be operating in this world according to what the Word of God says in regards to stewardship. Tune in next week when we find more things to think about. But until then, love God, love people. 
Bye for now.